Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Regina Martinez was no stranger to retaliation. A journalist out of Mexico's Gulf Coast state of Veracruz, Regina's stories for the magazine Proceso laid out the corruption and abuse underlying Mexican politics. She was barred from press conferences, and copies of Proceso often disappeared before they made the newsstands. And in 2012, shortly after Proceso published an article on corruption and two Veracruz politicians, and the magazine went missing once again, she was bludgeoned to death in her bathroom. The message was clear. No journalist in Mexico was safe. Catherine Corcoran, then leading Associated Press coverage of Mexico, admired Regina Martinez's work. Troubled by the news of her death, Corcoran journeyed to Veracruz to find out what happened. The result is a book. It's out now, The In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. Catherine Corcoran is former Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America. And uh, while at the AP, she led an award-winning team that broke major stories about cartel and state violence and abuse of authority in Mexico and Central America. Her columns about Mexican politics and press of uh, freedom have appeared in Washington Post, Houston Chronicle, and Univision Online, among other publications. She's currently co-director of Cronkite Noticias, a bilingual reporting program at Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication, also of uh, Master Lab, an investigative editor training program in Mexico City. Uh, Catherine Corcoran, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is an important new book, uh, fascinating, troubling, uh, all of those uh, mixed up into one. I want to start with some parallels that you, uh, that you draw in your preface. One of the reasons you uh, admired Regina Martinez so much is you, you, know, you were kind of on parallel tracks, right, except that you were safer because, uh, you know, you worked for a, a U.S. Um, an international uh, organization, uh, so I want to start with you. Um, you say you were graduated from college in the 80s, so this is kind of the Watergate generation. Why did you get into journalism? Well, I, I really did believe, or do believe, that the free press is fundamental to a free society. And uh, I enjoy writing, of course. I enjoy traveling. I, I enjoy being with the biggest story of the moment, but I also feel that what we do is, is essential, and it's very important. And it's very important that we do it with care, with ethics, with standards, and uh, provide information that's essential for a free society to live. You said uh, in your first job at a small newspaper, you analyzed pedestrian accident statistics, and that resulted in the installation of a stop sign. So, <laughs> you know, a, a very small... A uh, level thing, but uh, very satisfying, I'm sure. And then it went up from there. Right. I I think, again, the first time that um, that I gave the public information, gave them the information they needed to make a change that was necessary, and uh, even on the smallest level, it, and, and sometimes that's where it is most important on the smallest level. But it's always important, and um, and and as I said, I, it it's it's something essential that we need to get through our day to day to have to have good information. So Regina Martinez, you say it was the Mexican version of Watergate Baby. She uh, started her career also in the '80s. 
You say around two seminal events, the Mexico City earthquake and the 1988 presidential election of Carlos Salinas de Gortari. Tell me a little bit about what, uh, where she kind of cut her teeth. Well, she became a reporter in a time of, of change in Mexico. It, w- it was subtle and slow over a couple decades, but by the time she became a reporter, the, the cracks were showing in Mexico's one-party authoritarian system. And uh, there were these two events, the, the 1985 earthquake, the government proved itself incompetent in responding to this disaster that affected tens of thousands of people. And the 1988 election was, everyone pretty much agrees it was stolen. And those two events started to galvanize the public around criticizing the system and wanting to throw out the system. And so she was very much a journalist of her time in that sense, where she she came out on the idea that in order to break down the system, you needed a free press. You needed a, a watchdog press. You needed a different kind of press from what existed in Mexico at the time. The press under the one-party system was very much controlled. And so um, she really started her career with that idea that this is important to speak truth to power, and she did it from the very beginning. Now, she was unusual for her colleagues at the time, because her colleagues at the time still followed the old system. And so in that way, she was ahead of her time as a journalist, but she was very much of the era of the of this wave of change that was going on in Mexico toward democracy. Um, of course, uh, very dangerous to be a journalist in Mexico. I think you, you wrote somewhere, you quoted somebody saying it's, uh, except for war zones, uh, uh, you know, journalists in Mexico are the most endangered. That's true, and some years even surpasses war zones. Mexico this year is on par with R- U- Ukraine for the number of journalists who've been killed. And it's it's astounding, and, and the initial reason why I wanted to write the book, the, n- the numbers of, of murdered journalists in Mexico is astounding, especially when you think about the fact that it's a democracy. And I just couldn't reconcile those two things in my head. I thought, why is a democracy the most dangerous place in the world for a journalist? And that is, I started out writing the book with that question. And the Regina Martinez case was the perfect illustration of the the why. And that's why I picked that case. And I picked her because she was so extraordinary for her time. And her death had such an impact on journalists all over the country. Mm. Um. Tell me a little bit more about what it's like to be a journalist in in Mexico. I I understand 150 or so killed since 2000. It's just appalling. Yes. So when I first went to Mexico, or when I first started reporting in Mexico, which was around um, 2006, it was actually quite a safe country to get around in. And I would go there by myself, actually, as a reporter. I was still working in the United States as a journalist at a U.S. newspaper. And I had no qualms about going there by myself and setting up my stories and traveling, 
you know, to the small villages and all over the country. And the the, the change was so dramatic because by the time I went to work full-time in Mexico in 2008, um, this rise in killings had already begun. And it was six or seven a year, which then was just astonishing. And today it's up to 15 and we're not even done with 2022. And so, so the, the change, the, the change was very rapid from a country that was relatively easy to report in to a country where you really had to make a a security plan to go out and cover a story. And so up until that time, Mexico was a very easy place to work. And there were not a lot of journalist killings under the authoritarian rule, obviously, because the press was controlled. And so journalists were constantly intimidated and threatened, and there were all kinds of controls put on them. But killings were very rare. So as the system was opening up and becoming democratic, that's when this wave started. And so when I went to Mexico to work full-time, the the parameters for covering a story changed dramatically. And so we at the Associated Press had to put in um, security protocols. We didn't let um, journalists go out by themselves. They had to go out in teams. We had GPS monitoring. We had all kinds of things that didn't we didn't need before, that didn't exist before. But in general, the danger is mostly for local reporters. The the international reporters are very rarely targets. And so this phenomenon really hits local reporters who are who are reporting on very local things. And they're reporting on local politicians and they're reporting on local corruption. And so those are the journalists who are the most in danger because they don't work for big media companies. They're kind of out there on their own. They often don't have security protocols, although that is changing now, but they're kind of out there on their own and oftentimes without even backing from their own media organizations. Um, When this whole phenomenon started and a reporter was murdered, the media organization would try to distance itself from the reporter and say, oh, well, we didn't authorize that story or, or they're just a stringer. They don't really work for us. And then they would just clamp down and not say anything, which, of course, to a journalist is antithetical because because when something's wrong, information is what fixes it. And so the whole phenomenon was was just so counterintuitive and so shocking. And um, and the, the danger for these local reporters continues to this day because because of the impunity in Mexico, whoever you're writing about, if they don't like what you're writing about and they want to eliminate you, they can do that. And most likely there won't be any consequences. And that's why this, this wave of killing continues and and continues to get worse. Mm. And, and this works, right? There, there's a, there's a lot of fear out there. In fact, I think you talked to a I think an editor, kind of in management, who said, "Well, that's essentially. I'm paraphrasing. That's that's you know that's our policy. We we go along with what the government wants us to say. Um, you know, because I have a responsibility," she says to to my reporters. Yes, it's a very effective tool because 
What happened in the case of uh, Vera Cruz was after the killing of, of Regina Martinez, it basically shut down any kind of independent press reporting. The people who did, the journalists who did the kind of work she did, the kind of um, digging and watchdog-type journalism, uh, their media organizations pulled them out of the state for their own safety. So some of them were correspondents for, for the national newspapers or national media headquartered in, in Mexico City, and those organizations pulled their correspondents out because they were concerned for their safety. And the and the journalists who stayed self-censored because they were so fearful. They said, well, in order to survive here, we're just not going to write those kinds of things. We'll write exactly what the government tells us to write. And so... Her case, again, was very emblematic because it was very successful in silencing the press. And so this... Looks like we've uh, lost Catherine Corkin for the moment. We'll, uh, we'll uh, give you a couple of promotional announcements and, uh, and try to get her back here quickly. We're talking with Catherine Corcoran. Uh, she's author, most recently, of In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking with Catherine Corcoran, author of a new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing uh, the Press. Before we went to break there, we uh, we were disconnected. I'm not sure what happened, Catherine Corcoran, but I think believe we have you back. Yes, I'm back. Sorry about that. Uh, oh, I don't know what happened. Yeah, either. no no worries. The vagaries of our, our phone system these days. Um, so... I want to have you uh, talk a little bit more about the, the, the atmosphere, I guess, you know, when in 2012, when Regina Martinez was, was killed, and it continues to today, um, I suspect, right? I, I don't think it's gotten much better. No, actually, it's gotten worse. And I would say, again, the atmosphere for reporting in Mexico takes a lot of bravery, um, because people are out there, journalists are out there on their own. They don't work for big companies that have security systems. Um, and, and they care, again, they care about speaking truth to power. They care about uncovering what the public needs to know about the people who are governing them, about corruption or about collusion with organized crime. They, they, they continue to do this work in this uh, very difficult situation because they believe in in information and in freedom of information and letting the public know what's going on. But they're doing it in a very precarious situation. And the problem has gotten worse for several reasons. Nothing For many of these cases, there are no consequences. So there's basically the idea that if you kill a journalist, you'll probably get away with it. And so because the problem hasn't been addressed, it's just gotten worse over time. But also, in these more recent years, the press in Mexico has become much more aggressive. And investigative reporting in Mexico has become more frequent, much better quality, and much more common. And so the, as the press has gotten more independent and gotten away from the old system of control, they're publishing more controversial things. They're exposing more 
criminals, more politicians, and that has made life for them extremely dangerous. Meanwhile, there's no really backup or support for them or the work that they're doing. Uh, this was early in the book. This touched me. Um, it, there are other instances, but uh, this was, um, you talk about Pedro Torres, editor of El Diario de Juarez. There was, um, that previously had had a, a journalist killed and probably others, but in this particular instance, a young photographer was killed. And uh, Pe- Pedro Torres published a headline. Uh, tell me what that, what that was and what he says it meant. Well, it was the second journalist to be killed at this newspaper, which is in Ciudad Juarez, right on the border across from El Paso, Texas. And um, Juarez uh, has periodically been a, a city that suffers from tremendous violence because it's it's a major crossing point, and it's a, a place where uh, drug cartels fight for territory to and for routes to pass their product into the United States. And so um, at this particular newspaper, two journalists had been killed in two years. The first one was covering crime and um, was into much more um, dangerous territory. But the second one was just a young photographer who just had recently graduated from journalism school. And, and targeting that journalist just made absolutely no sense. It felt very random, and it felt... Um, very is like just a way to means of intimidation or random means of intimidation that cost someone his life. And so, um, as I mentioned, the system at the time was for the media organizations to be very quiet when they were hit by cartels or by various interests that they felt the best way to stay, stay safe was to go silent. And so Pedro, in that moment, decided to do the opposite. He just wanted to flat out say what was going on and then just address the drug cartels and say with a front-page headline and and an editorial, what do you want from us? Why are you doing this to us? Explain it. And it was unprecedented for the time. Uh, It was an act by a newspaper that was covered all over the world, but he was basically trying to bring the problem out in the open for the first time and just say, look what's happening here. What is the purpose of all this? What do you want from us? And it was very much a rhetorical question, even though the story was covered as as if he were trying to placate the drug cartels. He was trying to start a public conversation. And it was, a, it was a very important turning point for the idea of let's get this out, of the, out in the open. Let's not shut down when these things happen. Let's write about our own story. Let's write about our own intimidation. Unfortunately, it didn't have the effect that he wanted it to have because the killings have just continued since then. I want to get to Regina Martinez herself and her reporting and, and then your investigation, a bit of it. Uh, but I want to spend a little more time on, on the, 
I guess the the systemic problems. Uh, you say uh, you know, and Mexico is supposed to be a democracy, right? And in some ways, it is, right? But um, there's weak rule of law, right? You right, no particular value in telling yeah. the truth. I'm quoting you. Uh, still rough going for journalists there. Everyone's afraid. There's a sense of paranoia. And then you go on to say this: a society without truth is a scary place to live. Absolutely, and I experienced that myself in trying to investigate this case. It was very difficult to know whom to trust, people who were talking to you and giving you information, what was their motivation? Were they working for someone else? Were they trying to steer me off the path? And it, it really was a hall of mirrors, as, as someone called it, that I ended up in a hall of mirrors. Um, because as a journalist, you're trying to verify and you're trying to find out what's true. And in a situation like that, it's nearly impossible because you're questioning every person who's speaking to you. And it's very difficult to find people that you absolutely trust. And it's it, it, the state where I was doing the, the work, Veracruz, was uh, and continues to be a very dangerous place to live because of that, because there's, there's a lot of violence, there's um, warring cartels, there's corrupt politicians, and all these things going, around, going on around you that could affect your personal safety or your family, but you have no reliable information on how to manage it. And, um, and it's a very difficult situation, ultimately, for the citizens. I, I think... That was really one of the points I wanted to make is, yes, it was made it very difficult for journalists to do their work, made, me, made it very difficult for me to do this investigation. But ultimately, the impact um, was on the citizens of Veracruz because they were trying to live their daily lives in a very dangerous situation and, and didn't have the information they needed to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And in this vacuum, they became victims of their own government. The, the, the result was, and, and the people behind the killing of, of Regina Martinez were political operatives. They weren't narcos or drug cartels. They were political operatives. They were people elected to public office, people elected to, to serve and take care of their citizens. And instead, they had formed what basically became a criminal government and they were victimizing their citizens. There, there were billions of dollars stolen from the public treasury. Um, ten, thousands of people in, in Veracruz disappeared and um, ended up being discovered in clandestine graves. And so imagine you're, you're a, a person there trying to live your life with your family, and one of your family members disappears, or you're being extorted uh, not by a drug cartel, but by the government or by a police officer. And so so it really became a, a situation of, of living in terror in many ways with no independent, reported, reliable information to counter what was going on or even let people know or understand what was going on. And so the effect of silencing the press really had an impact on the average citizen because they couldn't 
function in this kind of precarious society where they where all this violence was going on, but they didn't know how to manage it, and and their own officials were stealing from them, and um, so I think that's what's most most important here is not how difficult it was for me, but how it becomes for the society when you have no independent, reliable information. We just joined us. We're talking with Catherine Corcoran, a journalist. Her latest book is In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, a Cover-Up on the True Cost of Silencing the Press. I'm curious, uh, just parenthetically, um, what does the average citizen say? What, how are they feeling? I can imagine a sense of powerlessness. Obviously, you don't want it this way, right? This is horrible to live in, in this kind of state, but... Uh, uh, feeling, I would imagine, that uh, you, you can't do much about it. Well, there was a tremendous amount of fear, but after a while, some of the citizens became, they were tired of being fearful, and they just wanted some results. And and this uh, this is, it started with the families of, of missing people, of disappeared members of their families. They, they were trying to find out what happened, and at every turn, they were threatened. But if, if you called the police to, re- to report that your family member didn't come home from work and completely disappeared, you were threatened. Instead of the police saying, okay, we'll start an investigation, you were threatened into, you know, well, don't, don't bring it up. Don't talk about it. And people got tired of that living in fear, and they finally took action. These groups started uh, um, family members of the missing. And so they started speaking out and doing the work themselves that the government or the press wasn't doing. And so they actually, at one point, I, I have a scene in, in, the, in the book where some voters actually were started publicly criticizing a group of reporters that were covering a, a campaign. And they started criticizing them and saying, you know, my son disappeared and you wrote nothing. All these things were going on around us and you reported nothing. And so so the the anger came out against the press for not doing its job eventually. And so these these citizens got tired of living like this and so they banded together and they started demanding investigations and change and they came under threat themselves. But it came to a point where where people just got tired, and it also came to a point where um, where the press found its voice again. And what's, I think, really important about this story is that this criminal government in Veracruz, which is likely behind the killing of, of Regina Martinez and was successful in shutting down the press, was eventually taken down by the press. So after, um, I would say about four years after Regina's killing and, and this press silence and this terrible fear and all these things going on in the state, um, some reporters in Mexico City got a tip about some government corruption. And so they came in from Mexico City and they started investigating and they found exactly what was going on, what what this criminal government was doing, and the whole House of Cards fell. And so I think an important, uh, another important part of this story is that, yes, 
the government was able to silence the press, but then they were eventually brought down by the press because you had people from outside coming in because that was the only way it was safe. The local journalists couldn't do this kind of work. So people came, from, journalists came out from outside, from Mexico City, to investigate and succeeded in bringing down these characters. And so ultimately, uh, the, the sunshine, putting sunshine on what was going on in this very dark place, had an impact, was successful in bringing them down. And I think ever since then, the press has been much more aggressive there, much more out in the open. Not entirely. There are still the the people who choose to um, be paid off by the government or, or whatever special interest. But but um, but the the level of um, the, the press is much more aggressive now than it was then, and. It was the press that eventually dismantled this this horrible system. Uh, tell us about Regina Martinez, the the person first, and then then tell us a little bit about the work that she that she did. Well, she was very unique for her time. When she started in the eighties, the press was still controlled by the one party system, but also she was a woman. The press, even today, is very much male. It's sort of a male profession. Uh, she was a woman. She was of indigenous roots. She grew up in a very humble situation. And the press at the time was very much of the privileged class in Mexico. And so she was a, a very unlikely person to become a reporter. And um, she came from a, a large family, very humble uh, beginning, and so she worked her way through the university. She was her, the first person in her family. There were nine siblings all together. She was the first to actually go to college and, and get a college degree, and she did it on her own because her family didn't have money to send her to college. And um, she, so she was very determined from the beginning that she wanted to be a journalist, and that she wanted to be a different kind of journalist. She wanted to tell the truth. She wanted to tell what she saw, what everyone saw going around them, but going on around them, but didn't really report because of the rules of the government. And so from the very beginning, she was, I call her a reporter ahead of her time in the sense that she didn't publish the official story. She went out into the streets. She went into very remote areas of the state to actually talk to people and see what was going on and to verify or dispute this, quote, official information that she was getting. Um, and she uh, she looked for documents. She looked for many ways to verify her reporting. She didn't just print hearsay, which was also a, a very common practice at the time. And um, she was very thorough and she was very dedicated she had a very strong personality. She was a tiny person with a strong personality. And again, that wasn't the custom, particularly from women at the time. And so she stood out from the very beginning, and uh, unfortunately not in a good way as far as the government and the people she was covering, because she was exposing things that they didn't want exposed and that the other media didn't write about. And so by doing this, by actually going out and seeing what was going on and writing about it, 
she had such a richness of stories that weren't normally covered in the press. And she gave voice to groups that weren't normally covered in the press. And so she covered um, um, indigenous communities and workers and and women and um, opposition political parties and all the, all the voices that were excluded from the press at the time. So she also st- stood out in that way. And that made her very unpopular with, with the, um, with the system, with the powers that be. One thing she investigated, I think, uh, right in the book is, uh, she investigated the, the disappearance, right? The people who disappeared and, uh, I guess, tried to trace them to where they ended up. Well, she did do some, she did work on that story, but that really wasn't what what her passion was. She was very much a reporter of social justice issues. She was not a reporter of drug cartels or crime. She was, she was very concerned as I said, about these vulnerable communities and how they were being treated by their own government and how they were being abused. And and that then led her to the halls of government to look at look for the corruption and the abuse of power inside the government. So that was really her specialty. And um, she did, she was assigned a story by Proceso. She worked for a national investigative magazine called Proceso. And she was assigned by her magazine to look into the municipal mass graves, what they, I guess what we used to call the pauper's graves, so the places where people who died who didn't have family who, uh, or maybe weren't even identified, that where they would traditionally be buried. And, um, and the, the, the hunch was that with all the drug violence and all the disappearances going on, around the country, not just in Veracruz, that some of these people were being hidden in these municipal graves. And the municipal graves were run by the government. And so the government, the presumption is, that is actually helping to hide these victims of, of, the, of the drug war and victims of, of the violence that was going on at the time. And so she did investigate that. She did write some stories about what was, or, or one story about what was going on at the municipal graves. And some other people who've investigated this case um, concluded that that's what she was working on when she was killed, that that's what, what, um, that's what the powers that be wanted to silence. They didn't want her to publish about these graves. But my, my investigation came to a different conclusion. And, um, even though she had written about the graves, I, I don't think that's what got her killed. I think what got her killed was her 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 usual line of reporting, which was government corruption, corruption inside the government. You write that the the government had a, a kind of a common usual playbook um, when a, a journalist got killed, which was kind of insinuate that well they they were killed because they themselves were were corrupt. And, uh, and you go on to say that Regina Martinez so obviously <laughs> was not corrupt. It may be one of the reasons why this was such a significant uh, killing. Yes, and that, again, was a very effective strategy by the government. Because when I first went to work full-time in Mexico and these killings started, 
they would they would tell us as international journalists because we did come in with the U.S. training and sensibility of being a journalist, and you have standards and ethics, and you verify information, and you have rules about sources, et cetera, et cetera. So they were very deliberate in saying to us, these aren't journalists like you. Like, don't look at them and think of yourselves. These are uh, corrupt people who are working for drug cartels. They're being paid by drug cartels. And so you can't cover it as if they're real journalists. And it was such an effective campaign that even my colleagues would say, oh, well, they're not journalists. And when I told people I was starting to work on this book, I, some of them said to me, oh, but they're not journalists. And, and um, But we had no way of knowing whether they were or they weren't because there were never any real investigations done around these cases, and there was no transparency in these cases. So we really didn't know. But a lot of people would just say, eh, not journalists. Let's move on to the next story. And as you mentioned, what was so significant about Rahina's case is it was the first time that it was clear that this was a killing to silence a journalist. She, everyone knew her, her reputation and the level of work that she did, including me. And um, so we knew right away this was an effort to silence a journalist. And, of course, the question is why? What did she have? What was she doing? And that's what started to shine light on what this phenomenon really was. I mean, there clearly were cases of narco-journalists who were killed and, and people mixed up, journalists mixed up with the wrong people who got crossways with whoever was paying them and ended up dead. There were cases like that, but it was by no means all cases. And they made them sound like, well, this was all the cases. And we, as I said, we couldn't differentiate. So, so because those cases ex- did really exist, it was easy for the government to broad brush all of the journalist killings as, oh, they're just corrupt. So the Regina Martinez case was the first one that made it very clear that that's not what was going on. Maybe in some cases, but in other cases, it was really an effort to silence the press. Let's take another break. We'll be back with our last segment with uh, Catherine Corcoran, the author, most recently live in the mouth of the wolf, a murder, a cover-up, and the true cost of silencing the press. We'll have more following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking with uh, journalist uh, Catherine Corcoran. Uh, the most recent book is In the Mouth of the Wolf, a murder, a cover-up, and the true cost of silencing the press. Um, in which uh, reporter Catherine Corcoran uh, went to Veracruz to investigate the murder of a journalist, Regina Martinez. And uh, she also talks about the, the overall atmosphere for journalists, very dangerous to be a journalist in uh, Mexico, um, and uh, the underlying causes for that. I want to get into, here we just have about uh, six minutes left, some parallels for Mexico to the U.S. Uh, I'll quote you here, this is Catherine Corcoran. Then something truly extraordinary happened. In the course of investigating Regina Martinez's murder, my, my country started to look like more like Mexico. How so? Well, the attacks on the press that I heard in Mexico and saw in Mexico, I started to see in my own country. And it was shocking. It was shocking to hear 
um, the press to be called um, corrupt, that we lie, that we publish fake news, that we're the enemy of the people. I had never heard that kind of language in the United States about the press. The press has always been criticized, and in, in some cases rightly so, but for being, I don't know, sensationalist, for being biased, et cetera, et cetera. But there was always an underlying um, sort of common understanding that we were part of the democratic system, the fourth estate, that in order for the democracy to survive, you need a free press. And, you know, love us or hate us, we're part of the system. And I remember um, when Donald Trump called the the, um, the media the enemy of the people, there was an interview done with all the previous presidents about that statement, the press being the enemy of the people. And they all said Republican, Democrat, to a T, I didn't like the press. I didn't like the coverage I got. But the press is necessary. The free press is necessary. And so there was a shift from that, which was a basic understanding, to this idea that the press needs to be controlled. The press needs to be discredited. The press is corrupt, which is exactly what I was hearing and seeing in Mexico. And because of the result of that campaign in Mexico and how dangerous it became, not only for press, but for the citizens, it very much concerned and alarmed me to hear this in my own country and to see the shift in my own country. I wonder how we, uh, you know, Mexico is the worst problem, but the U.S. is trending in the wrong direction. Uh, how do we counteract this? How do we make it better? Well, I, I think several things. I think in this explosion of information, Internet, social media, that um, what we do is gets a little bit lost, I think, and a little bit lumped in with all kinds of, of um, information and propaganda. And, and yeah, false, there's a lot of false information out of there. So I think that um, the average person doesn't really understand what journalists do. And I think we need to do a better job of explaining what we do and how we do our work and to become more transparent about what our rules are, what our, what our ethics are, what, how do we gather information, how do we decide what's, what's ready to print or to publish um, or, or air. And um, I think it's very important for, for people to understand what we do, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I show what Regina Martinez did. I show what reporters do when we're doing our jobs well and the kind of important information that we provide, that people really need to live their daily lives or to make decisions. So I think we can be more active about showing what we do. How is, how is information reported by a journalist different from all this other noise out there? And um, because I think we do get lumped into a big basket of, uh, well, the press is bad and we don't like the media. And, and that's the message all the time without really differentiating, well, what media? What media are you talking about? And so I think there needs to be um, more of a conversation about that. Um, 
and 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 more of a conversation for people to think about where do they get their information and why do they trust it. So I think we need to have more of an open conversation about what about the role of the press, what we do, why it's important, what we do well, what we do bad, you know, take our lumps as, you know, like any other big institution. So um, I think that's one thing, but I also think that we need to understand what happens when the free press goes away. So on the one hand, understand what we do and then understand what happens when we are shut down, when we are prevented or intimidated from doing our jobs. And that's very much the story in the book and, and why I told the story. Because the a per, anyone who attacks the press, the press is not the ultimate target. The ultimate target is controlling the society, controlling the average person and what that person can know what information that person can receive. And so I, I really wanted to show that as well um, with this particular story. We'll reach the end of our time. Um, Catherine Corcoran is former Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America, and uh, she's currently co-director of Cronkite Noticias, bilingual reporting program at Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication and of Master Lab, an investigative editor training program in Mexico City. Author of the uh, most recent books, new and out now, available In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. Catherine Corcoran, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Thank you so much for having me and for your interest in the book. Thank you. Uh, we'll go out, as we do, uh, on the second uh, Monday of uh, the month with uh, Tanya Gibson and uh, her commentary, She Goes On. Earlier this fall, I turned into parts of the Queen's funeral. Not because I'm a royal watcher, I honestly don't usually give them any thought at all, but because it was impossible to avoid. A week of festive mourning on every channel and outlet, it seemed even those off the grid would have heard at least a little bit about the pompous circumstance taking place in the small country across the Atlantic. And after watching the brief snippets I did, I solidified one very important fact about my own life. I do not want a funeral. At all. In any way. Before the Queen died, I had already been thinking about what I would want, simply in that midlife, what-if, abstract sort of way, and was leaning toward the no-service route. But as the week dragged, it became perfectly clear. I don't want mourners in black. I don't want unneeded and wasteful flowers everywhere. I don't want talks and hymns and tears. I don't want my soul trying to get rest on the other side, worrying about who would show up and who simply shouldn't. None of this should have surprised me, given that I should have and then would have eloped the entire wedding spectacle sitting with me so uneasily both times I married. But still, it did. At least a little. I think the entire notion of a funeral is so ingrained in our thinking that we don't realize we can simply opt out, make our wishes known, and hope they are carried out, even from the great beyond. Our culture is so pro-funeral, and the bigger the better, it seems, that we worry about disappointing people well after the blood has been drained. Why is it that we simply accept the status quo with nary a thought of what we actually want with our final goodbye to entail? Or why, if my suspicions hold... Are we so egotistical to demand time from others that they may not want to give? Those are deeper thoughts for another day, perhaps. So, then, what is the equivalent to elopement but for the big rainbow bridge? 
I'm not exactly sure. But here's what I'm currently thinking about when my time with the pearly gates shows up with the caveat that I could change my mind at any given point and haunt people into giving me my original wish to be stuffed and posed in my spot on the couch to continue life with my love. A kid, of course. Well, mostly. When my time is up, I want the simplest box. And I'm not talking the simplest box the funeral parlor will still rip you off for, but the simplest box. Once, years ago, I saw a local man advertise on social media that he made beautiful blue pine caskets. Simple, with absolutely zero adornment. Find him, or his equivalent, and go that route. Bring your own casket to the party, if you will. I once attended a funeral where the casket was lined with the deceased's favorite cookies. Still, years later, I wonder how preserved they are in that sealed box underground and can't imagine something a little less airtight would be conducive to sneaking snacks into the beyond, so maybe simple should stand without any last-minute food stuffing. But, also, don't forget a quilt. One of the better-known facts about me is my distaste for cut flowers. Enjoy them far off in the wild, but I am just not one who enjoys having them cut, arranged, and around me, so the absence of a grand celebration, I could avoid them even in death. Which seems like a check for the wind column, if there was one for such a subject. I think, being not alive, I need to count the upsides when and where I can. However, I was just reading about a company that will convert your ashes into a gemstone for jewelry, and I'm not going to lie, I spent at least an hour rolling it over in my brain. I don't love the idea of being burned to rubble, but I also don't hate the idea of my remains sitting in a ring on my husband's finger for eternity. My mind may have already been changed. I do wonder if all of this thinking is just my natural aversion to funerals taking over. Mid-age seems to be the time when funerals are more prevalent in life, like the marriage stage or baby stage in earlier adulthood, and like baby showers in another era... I know I will do nearly anything at all to get out of going to anyone's funeral. Apparently, even mine. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On.